The Avengers. That's what we call ourselves. Sort of like a team. Earth's mightiest heroes type thing. Avengers, time to work for a living. That's my secret. I'm always angry. I am on the side of life. You get hurt, hurt him back. You get killed, walk it off. I'm here to talk to you about the Avenger Initiative. I'm your host, Andrew, and I'm here to talk to you about the Avengers. Welcome to episode 13 of Some Assembly Required, your weekly adventure into the annals of Earth's mightiest heroes, the Avengers. This week, we're going to be taking a look at Avengers number 11, Spider-Man. This issue is written by Stan Lee, pencils by Don Heck, inks by Schick Stone, and letters by Sam Rosen, and it comes out in December of 1964. So getting us started, I like this cover. It's nice, it's simple, we've got the Avengers, we've got Spider-Man, the colors are nice, there's not a whole lot to it. I'm actually a big fan of the fact that there isn't a thousand words on the cover. I'm okay with some text, some dialogue on the cover, but some of the covers we've gotten are just really, really word-heavy, and it kind of detracts, I think, from the art and the, the eye appeal of the cover. This is also our second issue in a row where we get what is effectively a second cover on the first page. This bugs me in particular because as the book has gone along, we've lowered page count just a little bit. We were pushing in the 23 to 24 range in the first couple of issues, and now we are very consistently hitting at 20 pages. So the downside of that is if you're using that first page as effectively a second cover, you're now losing a page of story. And previously I've complained that Don Heck feels like he's trying to rush the story to completion, this doesn't help that in any way, shape, or form. If you take a page away and you're having problems finishing the story in time, the logical answer would be give the page back. So our issue actually opens with Ant-Man working on an experiment, and in the middle of it, he receives a call from the Avengers that there's a meeting he needs to attend. Ant-Man pleads to get a little bit of extra time so he can finish his experiment. Thor turns him down, and the experiment goes bad because Ant-Man wasn't able to monitor it. At this point, Ant-Man starts to wonder whether or not he should have become an Avenger in the first place. And this is the point, I think, at which we see the team start to fracture a little bit. We had Iron Man doubting a few months ago, but he came back and joined the team, no problems, and really made up for it in that issue. Now we have Giant Man starting to doubt, and in only a few issues, the team's going to undergo its first major change, and all of the founding members, except for Captain America, are going to leave. Actually, all of the founding members are going to leave because Cap isn't actually a founding member. I think we're starting to set the stage for that right here. And actually, the reason the Avengers are having the meeting also kind of lends to that, in that Iron Man is missing. So we get an editor's note telling us to see Tales of Suspense 61. And if you go take a look at Tales of Suspense 61, you see that Tony Stark has apparently been murdered and that Iron Man is basically running Stark's everything. Now, obviously, readers know that Iron Man is, in fact, Tony Stark. And what happened was that several issues before that, Iron Man fought the Black Knight and he needed extra power. Similar to like a drug addiction, Tony's heart got used to the extra power, and so now he needs the extra power to keep himself alive, and so he can't leave his Iron Man suit. 
He's afraid to. He's concerned that if he does, he'll die. And basically, Stark works himself into a situation where it looks like Tony Stark has been killed and Iron Man is off trying to find the killer, or in some cases, actually thought to be the killer. So the reality is that Tony Stark is Iron Man. Both Iron Man and Tony Stark are just fine. But because none of the other Avengers know this, or anyone else for that matter, they assume that Stark is dead and that Iron Man has gone to hunt down Stark's murderers. So because of all of this, Captain America puts forth a motion at the meeting that the Avengers suspend their efforts until Iron Man returns. And Giant Man counters that with another motion, says, while we understand that Iron Man is off looking for Stark's murderer and we can accept that, the Avengers themselves really should stay functional, so let's grant him a leave of absence instead. Cap readily agrees and they move forward. Now, a couple of other things happen during this meeting. I say Cap readily agrees. However, before that happens, Rick Jones attempts to second Giant Man's motion, and Cap slaps him down pretty hard, saying he's out of order because he has no voting privileges because he's not an Avenger. While Cap is technically correct, and according to Futurama, that is the best kind of correct, my contention is if Rick doesn't have voting rights, why is he there in the first place? And again, this goes back to what we talked about a couple episodes ago. Stop stringing the kid along. Let him be an Avenger or not. Don't make him sit on the sideline. The other issue is that because Giant Man is kind of peeved at Thor at the moment, Giant Man makes a particularly snarky comment. While it's not out of character, it's really certainly out of line. It's interesting, Giant Man is both ultra snarky and very rational at the same time, you know, within the course of three panels. And I think that's a nice look into Hank Pym's character because he does have that kind of duality going where he's got these anger problems and he's got this impulsive, sarcastic, snarky attitude, but he's also super scientist Hank Pym. It's a nice way for us to see that without digging too deep into the weeds of his character. It's just kind of built into the existing story. Their meeting concluded. The Avengers once again part ways. However, they do so under observation. Our wonderful villain Kang the Conqueror is back. And oh, do I love Kang. So Kang is now watching the Avengers from the year 3000. So he's actually watching them from the future. And Kang has been watching them for a little while now, at least since their last encounter. So he's seen the fight with Wonder Man and how things did not go well for the Masters of Evil. So Kang decides to execute a similar plan, but instead of finding someone who may or may not change their mind, like Wonder Man did, Kang, because he has the year 3000 technology, is going to build someone who is completely subservient to his will. So on this page, I really love this a panel of Kang where it's mostly Kang's head. It's a talking head panel. It's a great talking head. Like if you're going to do a talking head panel, this is what a talking head panel should look like. So Kang decides that not only should he build his own robot, he should model that robot on someone from, that he should model the robot on someone from the Avengers' own time. And he has a number of heroes and villains he can choose from. And at one point he says, well, I could do all of the villains that are around. And he says, well, no, that's probably not a good idea because they're likely just to get in each other's way and fight amongst one another. And then Kang decides, no, instead of having multiple people, I'm just going to do one. And I know the perfect one, Spider-Man. And, you know, it's an interesting choice. I can follow Kang's thought process through all of this. I don't necessarily agree with everything Kang's thinking, but I can at least follow it. I also appreciate the fact that Kang is making a very concerted effort to learn from past mistakes. 
And this is actually the second time we're seeing a villain or villain team do this in that the Masters of Evil did this last issue. Remember, they were talking about how they should have a powerful ally and Enchantress reminds Zemo that, no, we did that last time with Wonder Man and it didn't work out very well. So they changed tactics. It gives the villains a little less of a, a one-dimensional supervillain kind of characterization when you can see that they learn from their mistakes and that they at least attempt not to do the same thing more than once. I mean, you know, certain villains are just, they're always going to have certain tropes. Like Kang. Kang is a time traveler, and Kang will always be surrounded by time traveling tropes. Magneto, there's always going to be, you know, magnetism and, and metal things involved. Like, that's just, that's his thing. But that's not all there is to these villains, and I really appreciate that. So once Kang decides on Spider-Man, we get a great page of Kang building this Spider-Man robot. And the dialogue is so great. It's filled with this Star Trek-esque techno babble that makes no sense, but it's so much fun to read. He talks about his isonuclear duplicator and proto-images. It's just absolutely garbage, but it's beautiful garbage. So Kang completes his Spider-Man robot and sends him into the past, where he waits for Captain America to come by and fall into a trap that Kang set, where a bunch of thugs come after Cap, and then Spider-Man shows up to rescue Cap. It's a classic. Now, I'd like to point out that one of these thugs looks an awful lot like Sandman. He's kind of a big brawler dude, and he's wearing the same green striped shirt and brown pants as Sandman. I don't think that was intentional. I think it just kind of happened. But I think it's also a really interesting coincidence. After Spider-Man has saved Captain America, Spider-Man, and for now I'm going to refer to the robot Spider-Man as Spider-Man. It's just easier to do it that way. So Spider-Man tells Cap that, hey, I want to join the Avengers. And thankfully, our villains are not the only ones who are learning something because Cap says, well, that's great, but not just anyone can be an Avenger and I need the whole group to vote on this. So Captain America takes Spider-Man to the next Avengers meeting, and both Thor and Wasp share in Cap's skepticism. I'm so happy that after instantly accepting Wonder Man, that the Avengers have now learned some degree of skepticism. Because it didn't work out well for them in the end with Wonder Man, and they were so willing to embrace him and bring him on board as a new Avenger. And now you think, well, I mean, Wonder Man was unknown, but Spider-Man, I mean, it's, you know, it's Spider-Man. Yeah, Spider-Man's a good guy. But you gotta keep in mind that Spider-Man at this point is really a loner, doesn't interact with much of the Marvel Universe, and so they don't really know him. They have no idea who he is under the mask, and they have no idea who each other is under the mask, but they have no idea who Spider-Man is, they don't really know his intentions, and what happens next only seems to further cement in their minds that letting Spider-Man on is a questionable decision, in that Spider-Man says that, oh, well, I mean, I want to be a part of the Avengers, but, you know, I, I was also here to help you find Iron Man. Spider-Man then starts to explain that he encountered the Masters of Evil recently and that they had inadvertently given him the location of Iron Man. Now this just pisses off the Avengers to no end because the way Spider-Man sells this is it's been a few weeks. So to them, he's known where their compatriot is for a couple of weeks and didn't bother to tell them until now. Thor in particular is just livid. And it's kind of cool because, I mentioned this before, normally Giant Man is kind of the impulsive, ill-tempered one. And we know Thor has that in him, but so far we haven't seen it nearly as much. We've seen him kind of get in a rage when he's fighting someone, but at that point, you know, you get the blood pumping and everything. That's a little bit different. We've never seen Thor snap to rage quite like this, and it's kind of cool to see that. 
Admittedly, this is also of, of a somewhat higher magnitude than we see in a fight. You know, usually Thor in a fight is kind of a, it's kind of a taunting, energizing, motivating kind of getting fired up. Whereas this is, he's straight up raging and he's actually got to get held back by Giant Man. Again, little bits and pieces here, but I like the fact that we're getting the additional characterization in this book. Since he reveals that he knows where Iron Man is, the Avengers demand that Spider-Man tell them. He does, of course. And the Avengers rush off to go find Iron Man and save him from what they think is the Masters of Evil. And at this point, the Avengers, following their standard operating procedure, make their way to this ancient Aztec temple in Mexico individually or in small groups. And this has got to be one of the dumbest SOPs ever. Because on more than one occasion, this has caused problems for the Avengers. Every time they show up piecemeal, they are almost defeated. They start getting beaten down pretty good. In a lot of those cases, if they'd only shown up in force, it wouldn't have been a contest. It happened with Wonder Man. It happened to an extent with the Lava Men. You know, the Avengers fighting piecemeal. I mean, there's a reason you have a team. If you guys weren't going to fight together, why'd you form a team? So Ant-Man and Wasp are the first ones to make it to this Aztec temple. And as they make their way through the temple, they are eventually ambushed by Spider-Man. Because, of course, I keep saying this is Spider-Man. This is actually evil robot Spider-Man. And maybe I should have gone with that. That's actually got a much better ring to it. Evil robot Spider-Man! Now, despite being ambushed, Wasp and Ant-Man actually have a pretty solid defense going on here. Wasp manages to land a pretty awesome flying punch into Spider-Man's gut. And I kind of cheered a little bit because it's the first time that we've seen Wasp really get involved in a fight. And she socks Spider-Man something good. Now, something on the art here. Don Heck uses a very distinct method for showing Giant Man changing size. And I can't decide if I like it or not. On the one hand, it's nice because it shows me exactly what's happening. He doesn't need to say, I'm changing size. I just see it on the page. And again, I'm a huge fan of comics using the show-not-tell method. But just looking at page 11, it's done four times on the page. And after a while, it starts to look the same because... Although Giant Man's in slightly different poses every time, it's the same effect for if he's growing or if he's shrinking. And after a while, I kind of just go, okay, I get the point. Do something different. I'm a little torn on that one. I'm going to have to think about that one a little while longer. Maybe see it a few more times and kind of decide from there how I feel about it. Uh, we get a nice little fly swatter gag here with Wasp. Spider-Man forming a fly swatter out of his web and going after Wasp with it. And I mean, you know, yeah, okay, a fly swatter taking out Wasp. You know, that conceptually I'm kind of whatever. But part of me also goes, you know, it's Spider-Man. He's a little more juvenile. And in general, it's still just a funny gag. Now with Giant Man and Wasp somewhat taken care of, the God of Thunder shows up. And maybe this is just an Asgardian thing, but Thor pulls an Executioner-style commitment to the fight, where he just goes for a flying tackle at Spider-Man, much like Executioner did to Iron Man two issues ago. Could be an Asgardian thing, but I just love the fact that these two guys are fully committed to exactly what they're doing. And, I mean, if we thought Thor was pretty pissed off before, Thor is just unhinged at this point. He goes really full tilt at Spider-Man. Spider-Man, though, manages to trap Mjolnir in some webs. And, of course, this being Silver Age, if Thor loses his grip on Mjolnir for more than 60 seconds, he turns back into Donald Blake. So Thor now is furious and desperate. So he goes ahead and throws a giant block of stone at Spider-Man. 
Now, I love this because it's comical. Spider-Man catches it in his web and basically it rebounds back towards Thor. It's borderline silly. It's borderline Looney Tunes. But that's kind of one of the benefits of having Spider-Man in the issue is that you can do these things and it doesn't quite have that same uber silly feeling to it yeah it's still kind of goofy but that's just kind of how spider-man does things he does these kinds of acrobatics and these kind of gimmicky gag kind of saves and attacks and they work in part because he's a 15 year old kid even though this is evil robot spider-man it's still based on the real spider-man kang input all this information about how spider-man fights So Kang's supercomputer is going to provide the robot with programming that is going to mimic said gimmicks. I just, I really like the fact that you can get this kind of cartoony without being like Looney Tunes. But as I mentioned before, Thor is completely enraged and smashes right through the block. And Spider-Man is waiting there, ready to web Thor. And this doesn't work very well until 60 seconds passes. And now, instead of Thor ripping through Spider-Man's webs, you have Donald Blake stuck in them. And Spider-Man doesn't really know why. And to be honest, he doesn't really have time to figure out why. Because Captain America shows up. Now, I like the fact that Captain America's fight is is mostly outside, because we've been seeing the inside of the temple, and it's cool, but outside the temple is cool also. And Spider-Man decides to greet Captain America by throwing a giant block of stone at him, much like Thor just did to Spider-Man, although Cap is not a god of thunder, so a stone block is going to have a more significant impact on him. In general, this is a really nice sequence. My only complaint is I wish we were kind of zoomed out a little bit further. For example, the panel in which Spider-Man pushes the block off of the temple and at Captain America, we just see the block falling and a speech bubble coming from off panel. It's pretty easy to understand what's happening, but I would have actually liked to have seen what's happening instead. We don't get Captain America talking or trying to dodge the block. We don't get Spider-Man pushing the block. We just get blocks starting to fall and speech bubble. And to me, that doesn't make for a great panel. Again, the rest of it, it all looks really good, but it's all just a little too tight in on Captain America. Of course, Captain America is able to dodge the block and immediately engages Spider-Man in a fist fight because, you know, it's Captain America. The guy is really good at this kind of physical combat. It's kind of his thing. And Spider-Man realizes this. He's outclassed significantly in this fight. So instead, Spider-Man shoots Webb in Cap's face and shoves him off the temple and thinks, well, that'll take care of that. To an extent, he's right, and the reader gets that reinforced because we cut to Kang, watching from the future still. He says, oh, that was a great idea. And then he goes, wait, why did the robot save Cap? Like, why did he use his web to make a net to catch him? That doesn't make any sense. Hmm, I gotta talk to the robot. So the robot receives this mental command from Kang, goes to contact Kang, and the real Spider-Man shows up. And I love this because Kang basically face palms and goes, oh, the real Spider-Man? Oh, why didn't I think about that? Oh, why is he showing up? Oh, how did I forget about the real Spider-Man? The look of just stupid frustration on Kang's face, like, ah, my plan, I was dumb, is just priceless. I really, really appreciate the Don Hack's art on that facial expression. Admittedly, Kang's isn't as bad as, like, Iron Man's, but when you have a character wearing a mask like that, it's hard to get that level of expressiveness, and Kang's facial expression perfectly conveys, to me, what he's thinking and how dumb he feels in that particular moment. 
So, of course, now we have evil robot Spider-Man fighting real Spider-Man. And this is every bit as glorious as you would expect a Spider-Man on Spider-Man fight to be. There is all kinds of great web stuff. The acrobatics are awesome. I just, it's like two pages of just all kinds of fun. And of course, in the end, the real Spider-Man wins. Now, I've got a little bit of a problem with the way he wins in that he finds robot Spider-Man's shutoff switch. Now, if I were Kang in the year 3000, building a robot to destroy the Avengers, I wouldn't give it an off switch, at least one that anyone could find. It'd be like an internal thing. But Kang does, and Spider-Man, being the kind of boy genius that he is, finds the off switch, deactivates the robot, and because they are up in the air at this point, the robot plummets to its destruction. From here, we get a couple of panels of the Avengers regrouping and Cap explaining what he saw because Cap saw the whole fight. And then we end the issue with Kang pounding on his computer in frustration, walking away while hanging his head. And I kind of like that. And Kang's like, well, all right, back to the drawing board. The reality is Kang risked nothing in this plan. He's just kind of the evil mastermind. And he really kind of ends the issue like that. He didn't really lose anything. And he goes, well, I guess that didn't work try something again next week you know it's that kind of mentality and again it's one of the things i like about kang now i mentioned this at the beginning of the issue with regards to the last couple of issues and we have the same problem again where the issue just wraps up a little too quickly for me now unlike issue number 10 this issue the ending at least works it's rushed but it doesn't look bad and it makes sense for the story where in issue 10 it doesn't look great and they're jumping around a lot and it really doesn't work very well for the story it's kind of a cheap ending this is just one of those times where they had a few loose ends to tie up and they tried to tie him up in the last page and certainly he did but if they hadn't wasted that page at the beginning they could have tied things together a little cleaner at the end here and i think it would have looked nicer you know that panel of kang walking away is kind of sad it's a really small panel whereas we could have had maybe another panel or two of the avengers wrapping up and heading back to new york and then we could have had three or four panels of kang and his frustration to end the issue you know it's not a it's not a major problem but it's something that could have been done better so that's our issue overall you know i really like kang as a villain I really do, and he's going to become really awesome even further down the road. The problem with Kang at this point in time is that he's a time traveler. So Kang is in the future trying to change things. And at least in the way the Marvel Universe is set up at this point, it would make sense to me that Kang is able to, as things are happening, see what the outcome already is. Right, Kang's a thousand years in the future. Even though Kang is influencing things, Kang is seeing what is happening. So, to me, it makes sense that as events occur, Kang can keep an eye on the end goal and say, am I achieving it or am I not? And if he's not, he can interject himself. And if he is, then keep going. Now, once the Marvel multiverse gets established in the 70s, this isn't going to be an issue. Because at that point, every time something like this happens, you end up with a divergent timeline. So... Kang is a time traveler. It's not just time travel. It's almost dimension hopping. You know, you end up with a different numbered Marvel Earths and that works a lot better. It's also how you end up with things like the Council of Kangs and things like that, where you can have multiple Kangs that are aware of one another's existence, but are not actually the same person because that would be freaking weird. I think the bottom line here is that it requires the reader to have a fair amount of additional suspension of disbelief to make the stories really work and to really enjoy them. Personally, I'm willing to put that forth. I know not everyone is, though. 
as much as I enjoyed Spider-Man in this issue, he's kind of an interesting choice for Kang to have used as the villain. So as far as choosing Spider-Man as the villain for this book, it's kind of an interesting choice by Kang. Now, obviously, if we ignore the real world justifications that crossover comics sell more comic books, there are a couple of reasons why it makes sense to choose Spider-Man. And as I mentioned, he's a loner. So most of the Avengers have not had a chance to interact with him. Interestingly enough, Iron Man is absent from this issue and at least so far as in Avengers, Iron Man's the only one to have any interaction with Spider-Man at all. And that was back in issue three, I believe, when the Avengers were looking to get some help looking for Hulk. And Iron Man used Tony Stark's image projection technology to visit other superheroes. And Spider-Man was one of those. But otherwise, there has been little to no interaction between Spider-Man and any of the Avengers. Now, the benefit to this is that any inconsistencies in the robot's program and in its personality would go unnoticed because they don't know him well enough to notice those kinds of inconsistencies. So that's a good call on Kang's part. Secondly, Spider-Man really does have a fairly impressive power set when you look at it, and it's a really versatile one too. I mean, he's got strength, he's got the spider senses, he's got the webs. Like, Spider-Man has a lot going for him. Now, honestly, I don't think he could actually take... Certainly not the Avengers as a team, and I think he'd have a difficult time taking most of the Avengers on one-on-one. Having a versatile power set is nice because you're very adaptable. It also means you don't necessarily counter any particular specific threat very well, but you can counter all threats reasonably well. Also, given the constraints Kang set on himself, but wanting to have a single person, not wanting to have the villains, Spider-Man actually works very well as a choice for that. It's not a good reason to choose Spider-Man, but it at least plays into the story well. As far as the art is concerned, there are really only a couple of minor issues that I have pointed out. Otherwise, the art is really on point. I gotta say, Don Heck is putting out some really solid comics here. What I would like to see moving forward in the future is Don Heck getting better at wrapping up the story in a more controlled manner and not rushing himself so much. And I say Don Heck specifically because, remember, this is the era of the Marvel method. So, you know, Stan will provide a an outline of some kind to Don. It could be a concept. It could be it could be anywhere from I want him to fight God, which is supposedly the quote unquote outline that Stan gave Jack Kirby for Galactus to a page or two of typed material. So it's then up to the artist to come up with the story and plot everything out. So a pacing issue like that is not in this time period a scripting problem. It's actually kind of an art problem. Given some of the really, really strong sequential art that we have seen from Don Heck, this is certainly something that is well within his ability to do. And I'm just looking forward to the point at which we get to see that happen. Remember, you can find us at AvengersAssembly.com, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and you can find this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and YouTube. If you'd like to be a part of the conversation, send your questions and comments to Andrew at AvengersAssembly.com. Next week, we'll be taking a look at Avengers number 12, This Hostage Earth. All right, hey. All right, good job, guys. Uh, Let's just not come in tomorrow. Let's just take a day. Have you ever tried shawarma? There's a shawarma joint about two blocks from here. I don't know what it is, but I want to try it.